Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Ephraim Shoam Seiner, who is Professor of Medieval Jewish History at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Beersheba. And we'll be discussing his new book, which is Jews in Crime in Medieval Europe, published by Wayne State University Press. So thank you, Professor Shoam Steiner, for joining me. Good evening. Let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on this podcast. I heard a lot about it from friends, and I'm delighted to be here. Um, a bit about my background. I'm uh, 53 years old. I'm a professor of medieval Jewish history at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. I received all of my training, all my academic training in Israel. I'm a born and bred Yerushalmi, uh, and I uh, received my uh, training in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I studied with Professor Avram Grossman, who wrote extensively about Ashkenazi Jewry, medieval Ashkenazi Jewry, uh, published a few books on uh, on this topic and was also um, the winner of the Israel Prize. He was my mentor and he um, uh, kind of guided me into this field of medieval Ashkenazi Jewry. Uh, and when I was coming to decide upon the topic for my PhD, I was kind of looking for a subject. And, and as I was looking for a subject, one of the things that kind of um, drew my attention was that there was very little writing about the margins of medieval Jewish society. Rabbeim were tackled, the Tosafists were tackled, Ephraim Elimelech Orbach wrote a volume about Valea Tosfod, our friend Ephraim Kannerfogel has written about Jewish education in the Middle Ages and has written about Torah study, but no one has looked at the sidelines of medieval Jewish communities. And of course, every community, we know that from, from, from our history, has people who are at the center and institutions that are at the center, but there are also people on the margins and on sidelines of society. And I wanted to look into these people, into the lives and plight of people who are on the margins of society. And I approached Avram Grossman at the time with this topic, and he said, it's interesting. I'm not sure you're going to find enough material. Um, and that's what I did. I started looking for material. Um, and, and that led me to uh, kind of putting together a big uh, chunk load of sources that dealt with the sidelines of society. When I approached my, my mentor and a few other professors who were teaching at the time at Hebrew U, um, they said, whoa, 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 you, you, you have too much on your plate. How about parcelating it? So eventually what the dissertation committee decided and, and helped me arrive at that decision as well was that I need to kind of break down looking at the entire margins of society. And that's why my first book uh, that came out in English in 2014, but originally was published in Hebrew in 2008, um, was about people who are on the sidelines of society for what I call involuntary reasons. Either they were sick, they were mad, or they were uh, uh, suffering from disabilities that marginalized them within society. And that was the first topic I looked at. And my mentors suggested, and I think correctly, that I look at other people on the margins of society, namely people who were deliberately there, made a conscious decision to be there, namely criminals, um, to look at them uh, from, from a different perspective and after I deal with the first group. So my first book was about madmen, lepers, and people with disabilities in medieval Ashkenazi Jewish society. And this book that, I'm, uh, that you're presenting and I'm discussing with you is the one about um, uh, crime and criminals. Let me just ask you one more thing about yourself. Where does this interest in Rishayinim and medieval Jewish period come from? Are you always interested in that? Um, well, I, I, I went to yeshiva. I went to uh, Yeshivat Haritzion, a, a Hester yeshiva in Israel. That's where I received my training. My, my, I, I studied with Rav Aaron Lichtenstein and uh, Zichon Olivachayim with Rav Yuda Amital Zichon Olivacha. Uh, and I was, uh, I was blessed with their, um, you know, insights and, and in-depth understanding of Rishonin. And as I was going through my medievalist training in Hebrew University, I realized that this can be a forte that I could use. And I can use my understanding and my ability to read these sources and kind of delegate it to a medievalist crowd that doesn't necessarily know how to unpack these sources. And kind of, I, I found myself sitting there as someone who is drawing from the world of our sources, the Rishonim, and putting it on a 
broader agenda for for researchers from other disciplines. Okay, so now so, to yeah, yeah so, so now to this book. Why specifically Jewish crime? Um, especially that's something a little bit interesting. I mean, you said you didn't want to do things on the margins, but why did you specifically decide I'm gonna make a whole you know book on crime? Well, first and foremost, I, I should say something more on on a personal note. I'm, um, um, I, I mentioned this in the introduction. I'm uh, I'm married to a criminal lawyer. My wife is a prosecutor for the Jerusalem DA, and a lot of what the shop that she talks at home is criminal talk. Um, I mean, she's a prosecutor and she is a, a avid kind of warrior for justice and for for standing there for the people who were wrong. Uh, she is a prosecutor for the state. And, and as we, we talked about it for many years, I realized that that when I look at my own field and when I look at our own history, there is very little discussion about this. I mean, there were a few books and there were a few articles that came out uh, um during the course of my studies that kind of discussed the phenomena of Jewish involvement in crime in various periods of Jewish history. But first of all, no one ever tackled the medieval period, the, especially I'm, I'm looking at the Ashkenazi Jewish society. Some people have looked into Sephardi and Iberian Jewish society and, and looked in the sources there, but hardly anything was done with regard to Ashkenazi. And we also have this kind of myth in our mind that, you know, the people who lived in medieval Ashkenaz were all chaste and 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 worthy and so on. And and we know better uh, in the sense that we know that society is multi-layered. There are all kinds of people in society. And as I mentioned before, our sources, uh, especially when we look into them, uh, this kind of stuff surfaces. There there are um, interesting discussions about how community. Um, should kind of react to the fact that within their midst, there are people who are not necessarily all law-abiding. And some of them, some of the people who are not law-abiding are, you know, not Shomer Shabbos or not Shomer Kashmir, but some are people who are involved in criminal acts. And in that sense, they sometimes endanger not only themselves, but the entire community. And leaders of the communities had to engage and come up with some interesting and, 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 and answers as to how to relate to these people, especially given the fact that when we're talking about this period of Jewish history, the autonomy within the community is relatively large, but it is curved. In other words, we're not talking about a Jewish state with a proper law enforcement. We're not talking about a modern state where Jews have absolute rights, like people living here in the United States where they're you know, equal citizens and they the, the law enforcement is on their side if they if they are wronged. Um, we're talking about Jewish communities, usually minority communities living in small towns in medieval Europe, where Jews have to kind of fend for themselves when it comes to addressing their own criminals and criminals in their midst. And you don't always want to turn outside to the foreign authorities because they don't necessarily have your best interests in mind. So. What I tried to do is see how medieval Jewish adjudicators, rabbis, poskim, meshivim hilchatim, in other words, people who write responsa, um, discuss the ways by which a Jewish community uh, can address people who are criminally inclined within their midst. And where are the fine lines? Where do the fine lines, where are they drawn? In other words, to what extent is a community or community leaders, when they look at society, say, this is something I'm willing to live with, and this is something that I'm not willing to live with, right? When do you sort of say, this is as far as it goes, we need to step in? And when does the Jewish community and Jewish communal leaders and halachic leaders say, this is also where I just don't have the tools anymore, and I need to call in the cavalry? In other words, I need to turn to the non-Jewish authorities. And Ask them to intervene, right? Normally, we would think of people who turn to the non-Jewish authorities as most, right? As people who outsource our inner problems into someone else's realm, right? But sometimes we find that rebellions say, yes, indeed, if someone is transgressing to a, to a point that this is uncontrollable, we need to call in someone from the outside to help us curb the problem or, or you know, find some sort of solution. 
Okay, so something I think that's important to discuss right now, and that you mentioned in the introduction before we get more into the book, is, you know, what do you say if people are going to, I'm sure, thinking this now, listeners, and people would ask you, well, isn't this something that's just ripe for anti-Semites to say, look, you see, Jews are criminals. Look what Jews do. So what do you, I mean, so what do you say to that, that you decided to write this book and just put this material out there? Right. Okay. So th- that's a question I've been asked time and again, and I should say it's, um, um, you know, I when I started writing this book about 10 years ago, I started presenting this material in small gatherings of, you know, shul gatherings of uh, shalashidis here and there. And it was always, th- there was always this phenomenon. Um, I would present the material, I would discuss it. Um, people would, would thank me very much. And then eventually at the end of the talk, someone usually with a thick Eastern European accent would come up to me and say, this is all very nice, but why are you exposing the Shanda? Right? And this is exactly what you're asking about. And, and I think that we should, um, at, at, they're right from their perspective. And I think um, I'm also in the right from my perspective. Um, we need, I think we're mature enough. We are old enough. And we are um, today in a point where we can acknowledge the fact that within our past, we had also darker spots as we have in our present. And unfortunately, I would like to hope not, but probably in the future, because humans are humans and they're people who will transgress. And the question that was troubling me, and I wanted really some good answers, was how did past Jewish society, with the tools that they had, address the issue of crime? And how did they get around to controlling it, curbing it, um, maintaining it on a lower level? Because there always will be criminals. What was interesting to me is that once I started looking for material, it was all there. It popped out. All you had to do was just go through the sources and stuff started popping out. And I'm talking about murder. I'm talking about theft. I'm talking about extortion. I'm talking about rape. I'm talking about prostitution. And all this comes out primarily from halachic material. And this is what is interesting. In other words, people who do halacha, people who ascribe to halacha as a principle in their lives, were addressed and were asked and were, were, were engaged by their communities and were asked for answers. And what I find fascinating is that this material was written up. It wasn't covered up. What interest? What is interesting is that, especially within, I, I would guess, in the last 150 years, when Jews were moving from a less, um, a, a more inclusive Jewish communal life to uh, a more open Jewish life, right? Within communities that received uh, um, rights in the societies that they lived, especially in Western Europe and eventually in the United States. Um, there was an attempt to kind of show that we were always good. We were always okay. Uh, we didn't nev- we were always law-abiding. Uh, we never broke the law. And there was this myth that kind of emerged that Jews were always, you know, on the right side of the law. And I think that is a myth. And that myth, I think it's high time and we are old enough and mature enough to look at realities head on and say, yes, we had our criminals. And yes, we had the people who came up with interesting and creative ways in order to battle crime, acknowledge crime, curb crime, right? So all these are things that I think that uh, uh, we as Jewish historians, as people who are interested in the Jewish past, need to embrace and acknowledge and also come up with the material to to kind of understand what was going on. Okay, so you mentioned this, you alluded to this, but let's just just to clarify. So, how did you go about researching this? Obviously, you mentioned was there a lack of material? I mean, what and what material mainly? I mean, you kind of mentioned, but what material do you use? Okay, so I, I should say there there are two there there are two periods here. Um, from the 14th century, we start receiving archival material. And the archival material that we get is mostly from non-Jewish sources. They come from municipal records, town records, right? Um, town, uh, uh, town governments. Uh, Jews were, were town dwellers, right? They lived in, in small towns. 
Um, you know, medieval towns were never very large. Um, the largest Jewish community that I know that um, um, in, in Germany until in, in the 14th century was was one living in Cologne. Cologne had a 50,000 uh, it was was a city of 50,000 people, out of which were, were about 1,500 Jews. So we're talking about very, very small communities, nothing to match anything that we know today, definitely not in North America, right, or in Israel. So we're talking about small Jewish communities, and within th these Jewish communities, we're living in medieval towns. Now, the medieval towns from the 14th century, there is a relatively large and growing number of sources from these medieval towns that acknowledge all kinds of issues within the town. Um, most of these towns had councils, and the councils were also in charge of administering the law and of appointing magistrates. And of course, as part of their administration, uh, there were also Jews living in those towns, and they were also appearing in courts. And we start receiving court records and, and court entries about Jewish involvement in crime. We hear of a Jew involved in shoplifting. We hear of a Jew who went to a, a Christian prostitute and, and that's against the, 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 the city regulation. Uh, so he's sued and he's, he, he appears in court and there is a court record and there is a sentence, right? But that's stuff that appears only from the 14th century on. I have a very close friend, a, a German colleague of mine, Sophia Schmidt. She's been looking at the communal records of the city of Regensburg in Germany where, where that had a sizable, relatively sizable Jewish community of a few hundred souls. And she has criminal records against Jews from say the late 1300s, right? On until the Jewish community is expelled in, in 1519. So we have those kind of records. But before the 14th century, most of the data that I have and most of the data that comes up, comes up from halachic material, from responsa from psakim, from halachic literature of all sorts, sometimes from exegetical literature, um, from stories that circulate within the Jewish community, right? Um, all these are written in medieval Hebrew and are completely not accessible to general medievalists who are interested in crime and in law enforcement. So when you read the books about crime and law enforcement in medieval Europe, Jews hardly register. They start registering from the 14th century because then the Latin sources, the German sources, the French sources, the Italian sources start discussing Jews. <clears throat> but before that, it's almost all internal Jewish material. So none of the Jewish aspects of crime register at all outside. And what I wanted to do was do two things. A, look into the Jewish communities and understand what is going on. And B, kind of hand out to the people who are discussing the subject of crime and how crime impacts society, kind of delivering to them something about how Jewish men and women who live in these areas as urban dwellers of the Middle Ages relate to crime, what happens within the Jewish communities, are there Jewish non-Jewish relations in the criminal arena, and there are, of course, to what extent uh, uh, any Jewish community or people within the Jewish community, how do they um, kind of uh, engage with that relationship? How, what do they think about it? Um, all these questions were questions that I wanted to answer, and the sources that I used gave me some of these answers. And what I, what I try and do in the book is not only analyze the sources, but at the end of the book, I put a rather thick appendix where I translated some of these sources that are almost all of them in Hebrew, in, you know, Talmudic language that is almost inaccessible to someone whose basic training as a medievalist is Latin and a European language. And I gave it to them in English so that they can read it and appreciate also what Jews did within their communities. Okay, so there's three main sections of the book broad sections you have on, on thieves, on murder, and woman in crime. Um, and like you said, you have these nice, very nice appendices where people can see actually the translated sources, some of the sources, and go through it. Just 
Let's talk a little bit more about the style of the book before we go break to discuss actual examples from each section. So like you said, you, you discuss, maybe you want to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, you can even pick an example to, to illustrate where you pick a, a specific, whatever it is, murder, theft, and you give a background, you quote the tshuva or whatever source it is you're talking about, and then you explain what happened, and then you draw, like you said, conclusions or explanations, etc. So maybe talk a little bit more, more about the actual style of the book, how you went through this. Okay, so what I did was, I, it was impossible to tackle all aspects of crime. So I decided to limit myself to things that are 100% criminal, right? Um, is not paying your taxes criminal? Some would say yes. Some would say no. Some would, you know, thrive on not paying their taxes, right? So I decided to steer clear from that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I, I focused on stuff on on instances where the criminal breach of law was very clear, and that not only from our perspective as modern viewers of this material, but also the language of the sources themselves speak of gneva, retzicha, netilat nefesh, ones, right? These are all terms that are used in halakha and are unequivocal, right? When someone says someone is a ganev, he means he stole, right? So I went, I, I, stu- I, I tried to steer clear from, from, from you know, the, the, the fuzzy grounds and stay to, to kind of uh, uh, stable grounds, right? And what I try to do is look and see, um, first of all, to what extent we have these phenomena. And again, this is not a book about history, right? It's not a history of crime in medieval Europe with Jews involved, because for history, you need statistics. For history, you need an ability to say, to what extent was this phenomenon prevalent within a society? I cannot say that. What, what do I say and what do I have? I have case studies. And I tried to see, again, from these case studies that happen here and there. And I should also say that as a historian, I was making a huge mythological leap here because normally historians are very happy with sources that are very precisely dated, right? You can say this source is from this and that year and it relates to this and that date. With halachic responsa, um, we usually can say who the writer of the responsa is. We sometimes have a clue as to what stage in his in in the respondent's career this was written, but a lot of that material needs to be kind of very fine tuned. So we we don't really have a way to pinpoint a certain source at certain people because again, if you're familiar with relig- with with halachic responsa, the names of the perpetrators are always lost. Right, you don't pin, you don't point a finger at someone who says Moshe ben Duvid was a murderer. You say Reuven was a murderer, right? Some sort, some Reuven, right? A, a, a guy was was a murderer, right? And then you are a drug. Actually, some of the interesting sources that we have are those where suddenly, within that kind of um, general aspect that I just described, suddenly sometimes within the responsa, you find names, dates, places, and those stand out really, really, and, and are really, really interesting. And we ought to ask ourselves why this is happening, right? Um, I'll give you an example where, where I think this is um, of, of extreme importance. One of the cases that I discuss in the book is a case where the famous Rabbi Meir Rotenburg, Marame Rotenburg, uh, is addressed where he is asked how to treat a certain person if that certain person is to be treated as a rotzeach bemezid or rotzeach b'shogeg. Did he murder b'shgaga or was he an intentional murderer, right? And the question that he is asked is about a, a person who had a certain biff with a, neighbor, with, with a business partner and apparently, according to some pre-existing understanding between the two partners, if the business between them goes south, they should go to a certain arbitrator, a non-Jewish arbitrator, to settle the scores. Eventually, you know, when you write a clause like that in an agreement, you're a lawyer, so you know. Uh, when you write a clause like that in an agreement, that basically says that there's very little um, uh, um, I'd say uh, 
that people don't necessarily believe one another if they put that kind of clause in an agreement. And when push came to shove, it, the business did go south. What happened was that number one of the people who was supposed to, um, you know, uh, go to a impartial arbitrator said, "I'm not going." And the other person hired non-Jewish thugs to enforce them. Now, what happened was that when these thugs showed at the first person's doorstep, uh, they kind of performed their job too adequately. And at the end of that quarrel, someone was found dead. And the question is, is the person who ordered the mobsters, so to speak, or the non-Jewish thugs, to enforce his way or to pull his business partner to the arbitration, is he an intentional murderer or is he Rotzach Bishgaga? Was it, if this was intentional or not intentional? That is the question posed to Mayor of Rotenburg. And what is amazing is how Mayor of Rotenburg um, is extremely unequivocal about this. And he says, not only is this person, he prescribes a whole um, list of penance that this person should do in order to be reintegrated into Jewish society. Because unless he does that penance that Mayor of Rottenburg uh, kind of prescribes for him, as far as Maharam is concerned, this man should be shunned out of society and completely disregarded and and regarded as a murderer and not admit being being not admitted into Jewish society. So again, according to the Talmud, if someone is a murderer, you should have a bathing sit and sentence him to death. But we're talking about medieval Europe. You can't sentence anyone to death. So what do you do? You ostracize him from the community. And you say, you are out of the community. And as far as we're concerned, you're dead unless you want to do this penance, very severe penance and return and do tshuva and return to the community and of course compensate the people who were who were offended by 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 this murder and what is beautiful about this tshuva is that in one of the manuscripts we have the name of this specific person and when i started digging into this matter i found out and again this is not rock solid but it's a suggestion i make that this person the person whose name appears in the tshuva, his name was Alexander, is actually the same guy who at the end of his life redeems the bones and the earthly remains of Mayor of Rottenburg and brings him to proper Jewish burial after the famous issue of Mayor of Rottenburg being abducted by the authorities, dies in prison, is buried outside the Jewish community, and this person redeems his body as an act of charity of chesed, as a last deed of his life, brings Mayor of Rotenburg, buries him, and of course dies very soon afterwards as an old man. So it's kind of coming full circle. So um, this is one of the suggestions I make in the book. And I'm, I'm trying to kind of show how the very strong opposition of Mayor of Rotenburg to such an act brought this individual to make a huge tshuva at the end of his life and to make the, do this act of, of benevolence and also redeem the earthly remains of Mayor of Rotenburg and bring him to proper Jewish burial in Worms in 1307. So essentially you're saying you're trying to show other things. Like I said, you're not showing from this one case that you found in a tshuva that, oh, look, this is how prevalent it was that Jews were hiring mobsters. That's not what this book is. No, no, definitely not. But, and, and I should say this plainly, uh, what I sh- what what comes out from the sources is that Jews, or at least some Jews, did not shy away from partnering with criminals. They did not shy away from creating partnerships that were criminally intended. And the halachic respondents say so in so many words. We have response by Rabbeinu Gershom right, the famous Rabbi Gershom of Mainz, who says very, very bad things about Jews in 11th century Germany, that they partner with criminals, that they um, have uh, um, these non-Jews rob uh, other people's property. And, and they uh, uh, are, are, you know, in, they, are, they should be reprimanded for what they do. And 
part of the interesting things that I try and show in this book is that in some cases, the halakhic respondents are very outspoken about reprimanding the criminals. And in some cases where they feel that the atmosphere is not favorable enough, um, they choose their way and their path in, in, and how to address these issues because they realize that they need to act wisely. Not always is the law on their side or the atmosphere, the, the communal atmosphere is on their side. Okay, so let's now go, even though we went a little out of order, we're ready to discuss a murder case. Let's go to the first chapter where you have to discuss theft mainly. There are some real fascinating cases. Perhaps you want to discuss a case or two or some examples of what you talk about there. Okay, so um, what, one of the things that I, I really, um, the issue with, with theft is, is, is fascinating because, you know, we have our regular, you know, there are, there are the regular cases of um, he tricked me, he fooled me. Um, uh, uh, I was I was intending to buy this object, and he sold me that object. I mean, these are things that are almost everyday occurrences, and they appear in Chuvat all the time. But what is interesting is that sometimes <coughs> we have cases where um, di- halachic discussions about completely different matters reveal a life of crime. One of the uh, Chuvot that I, I'm uh, uh, really, really fascinated, I was really fascinated by is a very famous tshuva from the 11th century, from the early 11th century by Rabbeinu Gershom about a certain Jew whose business it is to deal with uh, booty, with uh, uh, stuff that was taken during battle, and he is the dealer for booty. He goes out there and, and sells uh, spoils of war to other people. And it's a very precarious business, but it's very lucrative. The amount of money that he turns in is huge. And he lives a very decent life due to this. Now, we learn about this case not because someone sues him or not because he's, he, he, he's you know, someone within the Jewish community is unhappy with it. We learn about this because he gets caught by adversaries from outside the Jewish community and he disappears off the scope completely. And the tshuva that we learn about this man's life from is a tshuva about Aguna, about his wife, who is left in Aguna. He doesn't show up after one of his business you know, uh, trips into the lands of war where he, he collects the spoils of war and sells them to the, to the highest bidder. But one of his adversaries abducts him and apparently disposes of him. And the wife is left in Aguna. And what happens is that after she's been walking around the Jewish community as an Aguna, as a very rich Aguna, for almost a year, someone within the Jewish community realizes the prospects that this Aguna has financially and offers to marry her. And Rabbeinu Gershom is approached and said and is asked to decide whether the circumstances of this person's life and the, the way that he, you know, lived his life, are they, do they lead up to the fact that he would show up one day and reclaim his marriage with his wife? Or are the chances that this guy disappeared? And in order to facilitate his answer, there's a very long list of how this man lived his life. And suddenly we learn about how a man, a, Jew, a man from a Jewish community in medieval Germany, is a very, uh, uh, I would say, successful merchant that does a lot, that makes a lot of money off the spoils of war. And how exactly does he manage to have all these intricate business dealerships with people who are very shady? Some of them are marauding lords, you know, people who actually conduct uh, 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 raids against other people and steal their property. And he, is thought by some people to instigate those raids. So in other words, he's kind of, I'm not saying he's a crime lord, but he's definitely the most important component of many business deals that have a lot of criminal aspects to them. And we know about this only because his wife became an agun. <laughs> okay, so that's one. I mean, there's, there's a couple of other ones that... 
struck me as interesting. I don't know if you want to discuss them. I think one of them was just a, a simple case. I think that you termed strange bedfellows is one, but it's just very, very simple with the, um, with the two Canadian. Yeah, those are two, Steve. So you could discuss that one. And then to contrast okay. that, I just want to, what I want to mention already, you can, but I just want to even know, just jumping ahead, the contrast that with some of the magical cases with Yudah uh, Chassid, there's some real, uh, as you call it, magic, there's some real interesting cases. But first, we can start. This was just a straightforward case. Okay, so so the Strange Bedfellows is, 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 um, is a, Again, a case that we have from the writings of Rabenu Gershom Moragola. So this is very early material. This is 10th century, late 10th century, early 11th century Ashkenaz. We have very little knowledge of what is going on. Um, and some of the stuff that comes up is amazing. We have a Jew situated probably in the same city as Rabenu Gershom Moragola, in other words, in Mainz, in Magenza, in Germany. And this man has a thief as a partner. And not only does he have his as a partner, um, they kind of uh, have a business relationship where the non-Jewish thief goes out for scouting trips, uh, kind of uh, uh, um, circles around the area that he thinks would, would, uh, would, would benefit both of them the most, goes back to the Jewish partner, receives a down payment, sometimes even receives some of the um, burglaring uh utensils or 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 uh the the uh, the tools used for the burglary and then this man goes out and steals and comes back with the merchandise and the jew sells the merchandise for him and again we would have never known about this because nobody is sued on a criminal court outside the jewish community the reason we know about this is because Suddenly, there is a business quarrel between two Jews who have similar relationships with two non-Jews. And the question is, who is whose non-Jew is whose partner? Right? And the reason we learn about this is because these two Jews come to Rabbeinu Gershom Oragola's court to settle the score as to whose Ganev is whose. Okay? So, again... We're talking about Rabbeinu Gershom Oragula using very explicit language, right? He's not covering this up at all. This is all in very clear terms. Somebody had somebody as a Ganev and as a partner. It's very unequivocal, right? So this is the first, the first um, uh, case you were referring to. The second case you were referring to are the the question, the 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 stories from Sefer Hasidim and some from the uh, hagiography hey or hagiographical hey stories about Rabbi Yudah Hasid. You know that um, both in Sefer Hasidim, that is attributed to Rabbi Yudah Hasid of Regensburg, uh, a fascinating 13th century Jewish um, uh, ethical writer and mystic. Uh, there, he has a few uh, stories that discuss how he was able to track down stolen goods. Uh, but not only that, uh, he was also able to help the Jewish community and redeem the Jewish community from being uh, accused of ritual murder. Of uh, and and the, the one that the, the 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 story that I think you're referring to is an amazing story uh, told about Rabbi Yudah Hasid uh, about how a certain Jew had a huge some of money deposited by him and was himself a victim of a burglary. And he turns to Rabbi Yudah Hasid and he asks Rabbi Yudah Hasid to help him. And Rabbi Yudah Hasid at first is reluctant to help. And eventually, after this Jew's implore, after this Jew's implores and says, my life depends on this. If you don't help me, um, the, the local duke is actually going to hang me and maybe also uh, um, take his revenge from my family. Please help me locate the treasure that I was entrusted with. Um, Rabbi Yudah Hasid performs miracles, literal miracles, where he uh, kind of, um, the story there is amazing. You see, he, he, he asked the Jew to look out the base medrash window, and he says, look out the window. And suddenly the base medrash starts to levitate above the city. And as if from a bird's eye view, they managed to look out all over town and find the Ganevin find the people who stole the property. Not only that, to 
find the place where the stolen property was buried. And after that, the Jew returns to the Duke and says, I know who the people who stole the property are. I know where they hid it. Um, please bring them to court and perform justice. And what is interesting about the story is, again, this is a myth- mythical story. It's not a, it's not a real life occurrence. But what it transmits to us is that when Jews are sometimes the victims of crime, uh, they use the figure of the mystical and mythical Rabbi Judah the Pious in order to push forward the need for proper justice to be administered, right? Not only revenge from the criminal, but proper justice. And this is something that is was interesting to me in how this story is told, and you can read about it in the book. Right now, okay, so now we don't want to get bogged down with theft. There's a lot of other stories about theft uh, in the book. A number of other ones read Chassid. You also discuss communal regulations about theft. Svarim, uh, Svarim Chatter Podcast is from Svarim being stolen there. I think there's something from England stealing right. an esterig, maybe. So right. we learn about from the from the king's rolls, right? From the king's records. Mm-hmm. So there are some interesting stories there as well. Uh, now, murder, you mentioned already, the second part of the book is about murder. You mentioned uh, murder, but I, I, I really, the first story that you discussed, I think it's kind of the first uh, real full one that you discussed in the book, I found to be fascinating. You call it a case from, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Limoges? I don't know. Limoges. 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 Yeah, I, I knew I was going to pass the French wrong. In France, in the 10th century, so very, very early. Uh, so so that that's a really interesting case with someone, I think it says, schok, right? Schok. So, you know, okay, yeah. again, this is... Um, the, the story there is, an, is a very interesting story because it, it comes down to us from one manuscript. We have only one manuscript about this entire case. It's a very famous manuscript. A lot of people know it. Um, but the story there is about a certain uh, man who is himself on the sidelines of Jewish society. He kind of plays with the idea of conversion. Uh, he is not 100% you know, sure what kind of identity you, you should assume. Um, the story comes to us from Limoges because it's a story of the deliverance of the community of Limoges from the great perils that this person brings about. And the story there is about this man, Schok ben Astar, that's his name. It's not Esther, but Astar, although it's written Aleph Samech Tafresh. It's Astar, probably Astro. Um, and this Schok ben Astar, um, living on the sidelines of Jewish society, kind of deliberating whether to convert or not to convert, um, eventually has a biff with a local Jew. And what he does, that, and this is something that I point out in the book many times, uh, in the cases that I found where we have uh, Jews who, eventually, who have quarrels with other Jews, as I mentioned before, they would hire non-Jewish thugs or non-Jewish goons to do their bidding, right? We hardly have a case where a Jew premeditately kills a fellow Jew, right? And that is something also that is interesting. It's, it's an observation I make in the book. And, and again, I cannot facilitate this statistically, but from the cases that I found during my research, this comes up time and again. One Jew may kill another Jew as part of a brawl, right? Or if they are both intoxicated. Right. We have we have a famous case about <coughs> Jews killing one another when they are when they are um, when they are uh, uh, intoxicated, when they are um, drunk. Right. So a, a brawl b- breaks out and someone breaks it, uh, hits another man with a, with a club on the head and and the first man dies. Right. That happens. Um, but normally when someone wants to kind of oust someone else, you hardly find a Jew taking a knife and going to kill a fellow Jew. What you would find is a Jew going out and outsourcing his violence against a fellow Jew to non-Jews. And this is the first case we have about this comes from the late 10th 10th century, from uh, the 990s. Uh, this individual, Schok ben Astal, gets into a biff with a local from the Jewish community of Limoges, and he hires non-Jewish assassins to kill him. And these non-Jewish assassins lay in waiting, await this, the murder victim to emerge from his house, 
And of course, when is the best time to kill a Jew? At the crack of dawn when the Jew is going to Minyan. And this person wakes up in the morning to Minyan. It's the crack of dawn. It's before Hametz. He walks the streets. We're talking about medieval towns. No proper lighting. Um, but, you know, meandering alleyways. Uh, he is targeted by these non-Jewish assassins. He is hit. He cries murder, right? We, he uses this, we, we find this exact um, phrase in the story. Um, and these murderers flee for their lives, right? After they have done their bidding, right? And we find how one Jew uses the strong arm of non-Jews in order to kill a fellow Jew. And this is one of the first instances. And this appears time and again a few times in the sources that I found in the book. So, and the story of Schok ben Astal from Limoges is, is the first one of these stories. Okay, so now we really covered that earlier murder story and a later now one. So there's there's a number of others, but something else that I that you that I do want to just discuss before we move on from the murder chapter is that you 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 alluded to this earlier with the Marami Rothenberg is that after there was a um, murder or there was a murderer, they would have a penance or there would there would be takanas or takanot for for the murderer to fixed, you know, to do tshuva for what he did. So you discuss the different regulations that there were. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because it's very interesting. Okay. Um, um, we know this from, from, from a relatively early period. And this is, this dates back to the period of the Geonim. Um, the Geonim in, in Babylon had a different kind of system of governance. Um, we were talking about an a, a overarching kind of system of governance where most of the Jews in the land of Bavel and, and other places in, in, in the East where their lives were governed and kind of uh, uh, overseen by the Geonim. And the Geonim had a list of, uh, of penitential uh, measures that were to be administered in case someone takes a life. Um, someone in this case would be ostracized from the community. And if one wanted to return to the community, he had to undergo very severe penance. What is interesting to see is first how Ashkenazi Jewry draws on this Geonic source. And we have references to that both from the writings of uh, Rabbi Yitzchakor Zahua from Vienna and others who basically emulate what we have from the Geonim and put it as penitential demands in their own manuals of penance. And what is amazing to see is that time and again, these measures are amended. Now, as a historian, I can tell you that if something of that nature is not only copied, but actually amended, it probably means it was used. And not only was it used, when we look and we compare the manuals of penance, we see that the, the demands tend to shrink. They not they don't stay the same, and if they are intent if they shrink, that means that there was popular pushback against these measures of penance. And the reason for pushback is because they were very very extreme and very severe. Um, people who were accused of being murderers were not only shunned from their communities and ostracized and basically not part of the Jewish community. They were supposed to wander from one community to another. They couldn't stay in any community for more than a week. They could only drink wine for Shabbat and Chag. They could only eat meat for Shabbat and Chag. They had to live on bread and water for the entire week. They had to return to the grave of the murdered individual and ask his mechila and ask his parents of mechila. And they needed they were and they needed to also um, flagellate themselves and cause themselves to lose blood in a fashion that is very, that is almost as kind of emulating what they did to the person that they had wronged, right? So, and we find these very severe modes of penance inscribed for people who performed either premeditated, probably premeditated murder, um, but we also see that these requirements diminish over time. And the reason they diminished over time was because people said, 
I'm willing to do tshuva, but this is too much for me. And I want to remind you, we're talking about a voluntary system. In other words, we don't have a system of incarceration. We don't have a system of punishment. We, we definitely do not have a system of executing individuals or incorporating or, or implying or implementing uh, um, uh, corporal punishment in the sense of, 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 you know, a court actually giving malcos to someone, right? Not every court could do that, did, did, or not every court had the amount of, of public acclaim to do that. So we assume that some of these people who are murderers or who are, who are considered within the text as took a soul, are willing for the betterment of their own soul to make to do tshuva and to return to the Jewish community. However, they say, this is a bit too much. I cannot live up to these requirements. Please do something about it. So we, I learned from these uh, um, different modes of penance that A, they were used, and B, that not only they were used, but some people said this is too much. Please amend. Very interesting. And like I said, there are more cases about murder in here as well. So now let's move on to the final section. The last section is woman and crime. So that let to talk about that, give some examples. Okay, so um, one of the things that's been coming up in, in scholarship over the past 20 years is that there is a fundamental gender difference between when, men and women, of course. And, and um, that is why women need to be addressed separately in this book and not as part of the overall uh, discussion about crime. First and foremost, because there are crimes that are particular to women. One of the crimes that is particular to women and appears in a section of the book is accusations of uh, uh, child abuse and especially of uh, uh, child mortality. Uh, in some cases, uh, we assume that child mortality was accidental. In other cases, probably uh, uh, what we today know as depression after uh, postpartum depression was the reason for uh, uh, child mortality and women were blamed for child mortality within the familial uh, circles. Uh, and these cases need to be addressed differently than regular, regular murder cases, right? Um, so there's this section about child mortality and how women uh, were either involved in these cases either because they were thought to be the bearers of these crimes or because this is actually what happened. And I'm, try I'm trying, in the book, I'm trying to kind of make, make a differentiation there between real and imagined cases. Um, what is interesting is also that the penance for women is different from the penance for men. Um, in other words, we have women, we have specially prescribed penance for women who are uh, thought to have caused the uh, death of their own children. Uh, but because women are also in charge of having children, you cannot have a woman, for instance, fast to the point where she loses her fertility. Because the two values within the community, the fertility of a woman and the, uh, her ability to bear, bear children is on one scale. And on the other scale is the issue of the need to perform penance for a crime. And Rebbeim that discuss these issues show how they needed to kind of weigh between these two needs, right? So inherently, we have a diff completely different sphere than uh, a man who is involved in, in, a, in a case of manslaughter, as opposed to a woman who's accused, at least accused, we don't know for a fact that this is something that really happened, uh, of, of child or of infant mortality. The other thing that appears or that I discuss in that section of the book is what uh, is prostitution. And that is something that, again, um, uh, we hear very little of and we re start receive the first notions about in the later Middle Ages. Um, normally, what I think happened during most of the Middle Ages is that there were hardly any Jewish women involved in prostitution. However, as we come to the later Middle Ages, this changes. This changes dramatically. And the reason for that changing dramatically is because Jews are pushed 
further and further from the public arena. One of the places Jews are pushed away from, from the public arena, are brothels. Uh, in the 12th century, in the 13th century, Jews were admitted to brothels. And Jews could use the uh, services of non-Jewish prostitutes, um, uh, usually for a different kind of fee or with authorities turning a blind eye towards that. But as we move to the 14th and 15th century, um, more and more city councils want to show how they are uh, uh, kind of elevating the moral bar. And, and they want to show that they are um, not, admitted, not admitting Jews into their brothels. And they're creating a Jewish free zone in the public arena. And suddenly the people who are procurers of sexual services from women find themselves not able to kind of quench their lust and their thirst in, in, a, in a brothel as they used to. And what they do is they start prostituting Jewish girls. And this is something that um, we know from halakhic sources. And we have a fascinating source from northern Italy from the late 15th century, a famous tshuva by uh, Rabbi Judah Mintz. Rabbi Judah Mintz is an Ashkenazi rabbi who traveled uh, in the mid 15th century and settled in Padua. And what he realizes is that there is women trafficking going on. Uh, usually young girls who uh, end up with a kind of uh, uh, um, life that they are suddenly pregnant with child, either pregnant or uh, with a child out of wedlock. And they need to leave their homes in Germany and they seek new prospects in Northern Italy, where a lot of Jews are traveling at the time in the 15th century. And when they arrive in Northern Italy without the network of support that they would have within their communities, um, they are targeted by uh, procurers and by people of very low moral standards within the Jewish communities of Northern Italy. And there is an attempt to prostitute these girls. And Rabbi Judah Mintz realizes that this is a social problem. It's not an individual case here and there. He uses an individual case to make a claim about this. But he says, this is something that I know of is going on, right? Young Jewish women who get involved sexually and find themselves in, in dire needs, travel, usually are targeted during that travel by people who are pimps. And very much like what we know from the 19th century, where Jewish girls were again under false pretenses brought from Eastern Europe to the United States and to South America. In the 15th century, it was from Germany to Northern Italy. Once a girl was taken out of the social network that would have supported her in her home and in her place where she spoke the language and knew people, um, when she arrives at a new place, an immigrant, usually with very, very low means to support herself and with a baby she needs to feed. Um, these girls almost only avenue of livelihood was prostitution. What he does is an amazing thing. He knows that according to Gemara, you cannot marry a woman who is with child and has no husband, either because the husband is deceased or because she's divorced or because she's a fatherless, she's the mother of a fatherless child, cannot marry until the child is weaned and is 24 months old. And during that window of opportunities, um, a lot of these Jewish girls are prostituted. So what Yehuda Mintz decides is that he is going to Paskin against Gemara and against the established Jewish Sika in this matter that extends all the way to the tour. And he says, I am going to let these girls marry because the only way out of the circle, evil circle of prostitution, is if we marry these girls, although Gemara would say no. And he says, I'm making this a public acclaim and a public announcement because this is happening left, right, and center. And if I don't step in as a Jewish adjudicator and as a posseg, I am facilitating for prostitution with my own hands. This is how he literally uses this kind of language in the truth. So Again, 
This is something that appears in our sources. And I find it, um, um, I, I, I look at this man and I say, I tip my hat. This is someone who realizes what is going on socially around him and is not silent. And he's willing to make a huge sacrifice from his point of view, right? For him, from his point of view, upholding the law of Gemara is, is something that, you know, he wants to do. But he realizes that if he upholds Gemara and he, if he upholds what is normally the psika, he will be facilitating for, for prostitution. So he wants to fight prostitution with the means at his, at his fingertips. And this is what he does. Fascinating. So like I said, like the other sections, there's more here in this section as well. Now, you also mentioned, we'll just mention again, then at the end of the book, there is a couple, uh, no, I don't remember, there's five, there's a number of appendices, different appendixes, people can read actual, the chuvas translated or the sources, and they can actually, besides for throughout the book, you do quote actual quotations throughout various stories. Now, so just, just finally, really, the final real real question, obviously, there's much more in the book. People can read the book. Is, I mean, so what can someone really learn from reading this book? Obviously, besides that these incidents happen, like you pointed out, people may not be familiar with some of this. Um, first of all, I, I, what, what I, uh, I thought I, I learned a lot from reading these sources and analyzing was um, that um, these people took crime seriously. Um, and they saw it as a threat to society. And not only did they see it as a threat to society and sit and lament about it, but they tried to tackle it heads on within, you know, the, the, the confinements of what they could do. And again, we're not talking about independent entities, right? These are not, this is not the independent state of Israel with Jewish judges, Jewish police, uh, a chief rabbinate, and so on and so forth. We're talking about small Jewish communities, fragmented rabbinic existence, right? There's no chief rabbi of Ashkenaz. There are, you know, you have your rabbinic decisors and adjudicators, and people look up to certain individuals more than they look to others. But within each and every community, you have a halachic leader. And these people are addressed, and these people are approached. And these people need to supply answers. And they look at their own tradition, our own tradition, the Jewish tradition, in order to tackle crime. Not in the best of means, but at what they have at their disposal. And I want to remind everyone, we're talking about a Jewish tradition that, on the one hand, has Masechet Sanhedrin. And we can look at Masechet Sanhedrin and we can say, Okay, if there is a murderer, we try him and we execute him. But we all know that executing a murderer is something that almost never happened. Even Gemara says, right? A Sanhedrin that executes someone once every 70 years is a, is a lethal Sanhedrin, right? Executing a criminal is, is your last resort. What do you do before you execute? What do you do when you cannot execute, right? where you do not have a penitentiary system, where you do not have a policing system. How does a community that has people who are willing to break the law live with these offenders in their midst? What kind of arsenal of tools is used? How does a halachic adjudicator kind of get or create the right atmosphere within his community in order to engage with a criminal? How does one acknowledge, first of all, acknowledge criminality? And how does one relate to criminality? These things were for me eye-opening because it shows what a community does, not only when things are smooth, but when there's a crisis. And sometimes the criminal is from the sidelines of society, and it's very easy to ostracize him, and it's very easy to say, okay, we'll shun him off. But what happens if the perpetrator is someone from the higher echelons of the community? What happens if someone is from the, 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 the better families, the ones with the means, the ones that would also turn a blind eye at social reprimand? How does a community delegate that? And what does a social and halachic adjudicator and a leader do when one needs to use as much power and as much persuasion 
as is needed to to acknowledge crime. That to me was an eye opener, and I think is something worth for each and every one of us to look into. Fascinating. So I'm going to put a link to, in the show's notes to the book that uh, listeners can check it out and, and purchase the book. I would just ask you, are you working on any a new uh, project, anything new now? Yes. Well, um, I uh, after dealing with crime for almost 10 years, um, I decided to steer clear from that. And my next book is about the Jewish community of Cologne uh, in Germany. Uh, it's a fascinating Jewish community because it left us very little by way of rabbinic material. We do not know of a yeshiva in Cologne, unlike the yeshivot in Worms, Mainz, and Speyer, not too far away from Cologne. It was a very affluent Jewish community, and it was apparently a community that was run uh, to a great extent by Balabatic. And that is something that is, to me, interesting because it's a medieval Jewish community that is not led by rabbinim. It abides by rabbinic ideals, but it is not led by rabbin. Yet it comes, we, we, we find very interesting aspects of their Jewish life that not only present themselves in sources, but in archaeological finds. And that's something fascinating to me, uh, how we can look into this story of the community, not only through the writings that are preserved, but also from the, art, the archaeological uh, uh, finds that emerge from excavations of the past. Okay, fascinating. So we'll uh, look forward to that. And I uh, want thank you once again for joining me to discuss your new book. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for this fascinating opportunity.